Today on Peace Talks Radio, former Amnesty International executive and past president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, James O.D., is among our guests. He tells us about a four-month Peace Ambassador online training that he's facilitating, which encourages its graduates to share whatever skills they might have to help nudge the world toward a more peaceful future. What we try to do is activate people to release their essential qualities, because that's the key. It's not what my design is for you to do, what I think you ought to be doing for peace. Maybe it's poetry, maybe it's dancing, maybe it's it's wildly different than I could ever imagine doing. That's what you should be doing for peace. We'll also hear from two graduates of the Peace Ambassador training. They didn't want a thousand new uh, students of peace. They were building a thousand new leaders of peace. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. What can you do to promote peace? You may say you value a more peaceful world, but you're busy, and what could really make a difference anyway? Well, if you've thought about such questions even a little bit, James O.D. would like to talk to you. He'd like you to consider some online training that would certify you as a peace ambassador and empower you to learn for yourself how you could translate skills you already have into some action that might contribute to a shift to a more peaceful world. James O.D. has a little head start on most of us in terms of working for social justice and higher peace consciousness. He was the top Washington, D.C. official with Amnesty International for many years and also a past president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. More recently, he's been writing books like Creative Stress and Cultivating Peace and speaking on the social healing circuit. Lately, he's been offering a 16-week online training program called Becoming a Peace Ambassador. Later in the program, we'll meet two people who've taken the training and find out what they've done with it. First, though, we welcome James O.D. to the studios of Peace Talks Radio. Welcome, James. Thank you. It's so good to be with you. At your talks, what part of your message do you hear back from people that inspires them most to think of themselves as peace ambassadors who can make a difference. The sense that we have moved uh, the peace movement in a whole new direction and that it's uh, not your father's peace movement or your mother's peace movement. Everyone can participate within their own context as teachers, as students, as social workers, as psychologists. So we're no longer screaming at the gates in a sense. We've we've breached the walls and we're now working inside the system so that the big theme is how do we create a culture of peace and how do we do that from the inside out. You actually have a, a document online that I've seen, a multi-point document that reads something like a pledge, a pledge of of commitment to what it'll take for an individual to truly become a peace ambassador. Uh, what what are just some of the most important personal statements in that document that that you'd like to see people embrace? That I am moving from one co- concept of reality to another. So the whole document, I am a peace ambassador, is about the movement away from finger-pointing, judgmental 
polarization into working inside solutions. It is the movement that says, let's look at the problems and the root causes of those problems from a systemic point of view and give as much insight as we can into those problems, but hold our best energy for the solutions, move towards those creative solutions. So uh, the, the challenge is not to have the problem eat away at your energy system. And now we're sophisticated enough to look at our our energy system in a way that even I, earlier in my Amnesty International years, didn't do self-care. I burnt out. You know, I was filled with moral outrage and righteousness. And that modality is what we're talking about changing, moving away from that kind of activism to a new activism sourced in this inner wisdom process and outer creative social action and that does require the ability to speak truth to power. We're not leaving those big issues behind. We're reframing them in a new way, and we're talking about how do we do this culture-wide rather than simply be framed as we're we're against war, we're against bullets and arms and arms shipments and so on. Mm -hmm. It still sounds like a tall order when you say do this culture-wide. Where does it start? Well, where does it end is a better question, and we can get back to where does it start, because unless you have a vision, you will be wandering around reframing your approach to this and that problem. So uh, every great peacemaker and leader starts with that vision. Wilberforce started with the vision of the end of slavery, the abolition of slavery. And there were many tactical ways that he had to you know, change strategy and ch- tactics, but he, he held the vision. So I hold a vision that's an extraordinarily large vision about peace on earth. And I say there, is, there are ways to begin with it. And so that's the end goal. It is peace on earth. It is that large. It is tackling the deep cynicism that obstructs that. But here's how we do it. We begin with looking at where our own issues are transmitted to others because the intergenerational transmission of wounding is the singular cause of violence to the next generation. And we're, we all get wounded. You know, if you look, I did a workshop recently. 30 out of 40 people had had some kind of sexual molestation or serious sexual abuse as children. That wound, if that wound is transmitted to the next generation, you have other cycles of perpetration and violence. But what was very heartening to me was, admittedly, they were coming to a workshop I'd convened on peace and healing, but these were people who are consciously interrupting that wounding. Now take that to scale. Now imagine how we we look at all of the strategies and tactics to interrupt the transmission of violent wounding and perpetration on planet Earth and, and what will arise in humanity in the absence of those forms of perpetration. Wave after wave of consciousness, I think, is growing in the so-called average person. Mm. 
one of the guests in Peace Week online through the Shift Network, I think it might have been Akila Shirelles, who talks about transforming a wound uh, into a opportunity. Yes, very much so. You know, Desmond Tutu talks about the truth and reconciliation and forgiveness process as one which opens a door to the future. And he says, basically, we have to open that door because if the door remains closed, we remain trapped inside our history, trapped inside our victimization. It's the ultimate ignominy that the one who is victimized holds on to their energy system of victimization and cannot release it and therefore is is still held by the perpetrator in that state. What we do know is that when people do release that victim attachment, when the wound gets transformed, they grow. They grow in capacity. They have the capacity to say to another person, you know, I was humiliated once. I was abused once. and But they're not coming from that other energy that's the join me in the frustration mode. Let's talk about how we were all messed over and done over. And, and there are many of those kinds of clubs around. And that's what I meant earlier by sitting in the energy of the problem that you exercise all of that energy, but it's contained within the victimization, within the problem energy. Can can we explore some of the ways that people can look at that wound even shortly after it's been applied uh, as somehow a gift or an opportunity? How, how does one do the work to transform that pain and that victimization? What What are just a few of the ideas that set them on the path to a more peaceful inner self, and then actually being able to take that incident and turn it into something that uh, encourages a culture of peace. Yes. I think the gift part comes later. So you first have to process the energy. You can't get to the experiencing it as a gift until you've transformed it at least once or twice. And so you have to move into this place where you begin to see that the obstacle can, in fact, help you grow if you deal with it, if you have a truthful relationship with it. In my book, Creative Stress, I I talk about this as the direct encounter with stress, whatever is happening or coming down, those three modalities that are going to delay the energy and that transformational process. There's only one further one which is going to help you. The first, as I said, is bouncing the energy, pushing it away. It's not going to help. The energy, 20 years later, you wonder why you have blood pressure problems. It's there. The second is, it's all about me. You have a big tank loaded up with all of that stuff. You push it, absorb it, internalize it, and that tank just grows and grows. That energy is not going away. The third is uh, the energy stings when it comes in. Somebody's humiliated, hurt you, wounded you, and so you numb it down. You go to the drinks, you go to the pharmaceuticals, you go to those other modalities. The one approach that will take you through, and it's when you go through you'll feel grateful, is you, you feel the pain. 
you allow the pain. It sounds contradictory. It's not, you know, covered over for me by a new age aphorism, but it's really allowing the pain in and letting that energy move through and tell you what it's about because there's no other modality that's going to help you get through. And so I say, let the bitter be bitter. Don't try to make the bitter sweet. That's falsehood. That's false affirmation. That's, you know, you know, quick positivism that doesn't get you anywhere. Let that truth rise in you, and then it may break your heart. It, may, it will do, it will have some internal impact, but out of that you will grow. And it's at that point you will say, my goodness, look at the growth that came from my actually letting this experience be real and full, letting the energy move through me, moving towards forgiveness. Now I can see, I can see in my own life experience that I can be grateful for this because I'm a larger person. Mm. We're speaking with James O.D. As he mentioned, the author of Creative Stress and the upcoming Cultivating Peace. You write in the Creative Stress book about how to engage stress in ways that lift us upward toward creative capacities. And that's what you were beginning to describe there. But let's try taking a negative stress that's common today. Uh, I can't find the job that I want. I won't be able to provide for myself and for my family. I feel like I couldn't try harder to find fulfilling work. How would you advise someone with this stress thought? In what ways do you engage a specific stress like that in an uplifting way? The issue there is not doing violence to yourself. So the negative stress is stress that is the energy that is blocked, that won't go anywhere, that shows up as health problems. And it comes from doing this violence to yourself of making yourself responsible for conditions that you are not responsible for. You're only responsible for the truth of the moment, if you like, that as these difficulties come into you, you know that you are doing your best to address them. The relief comes, the inner relief comes from that truthful relationship of I'm trying my best, of I am facing my issue. I'm not addressing my loss of jobs by numbing myself and pushing it away and not looking at it responsibility. And so the body has a signature reality. I think it's part of a, my belief is it, it's, it's a beneficent universe in that sense because it says when you're not trying to find the job, when you're allowing the frustration to beat you down to make you responsible for the loss, then you get adrenaline, cortisol pumping too much. You get amygdala fear response. And I'm not saying that it's cozy in the other direction when you're without a job. But there's a huge difference in your body when you come to a state of peace about what you are, who you are, and what you're attempting to do on the planet. And it is coming to that state of peace is a deep acceptance that I have given my 
capacities. I'm doing my best. And there is something in which the body recognizes this primal truth that that is so. When you are not in that state of peace, even in harsh conditions, then your body pumps these other biochemicals. It's almost like a signature tune. And the neuroscientist Jer Levy says, more than anything else, it seems to be that the human being is designed for challenge. And so our whole biology rises to challenge when we're putting our energy into it and we're meeting those obstacles. And as we do, that's when I say, as, as we mentioned earlier, that sense of the obstacle becomes my teacher. The obstacle is really helping me grow in ways that I never could have imagined. Hmm. James O.D., author of Cultivating Peace and Peace Ambassador Trainer for the Shift Network. We'll have more from him and from a couple of his graduates after this break on Peace Talks Radio. More in a minute. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We have scores of programs archived online, and you can check them all out at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're exploring an online training opportunity called How to Become a Peace Ambassador, offered by the Shift Network, which presents a series of social consciousness-raising online classes and events. James O.D. is our guest. He facilitates the Peace Ambassador training. He's a former official with both Amnesty International and the Institute of Noetic Sciences and author of books like Creative Stress and Cultivating Peace. Before our break, he was talking with me about the first steps to becoming a peace ambassador, attending to our own issues and our own bodies first, much like the often used metaphor from the instructions on what to do in a commercial plane emergency. Put your own mask on before helping others. Indeed, our bodies are instruments, I think, of, of a profound level of connected consciousness. And so even as you sit there, your body is leaking all kinds of information to me if I am aware of that I can pick up some of those signals. But, you know, our internal reality is, is always expressing itself through the body in many, many ways that, you know, the research now that shows the slightest eye movements in couples that Daniel Goleman wrote about in Emotional Intelligence that suggests that they can pick up disdain or superiority 
leaking through this very little flickers of the eyes. And they say, well, that's probably going to be a three-year marriage or whatever. (laughs) So that's the, if you like, that's one way of looking at it. The other way is that, in fact, then we are designed in some ways to connect with each other, that uh, the, the experience of being alone is is a severe one, but once we learn that, in fact, we are in cycles of connectivity through the body, through my capacity to listen, so we, we know that deep, compassionate listening is a highly active peacemaking strategy because what it does is if I listen deeply with a heart-centered awareness to you, I calm the amygdala in the middle of your brain that part of your brain that says fight, flight, worry, and the amygdala is connected to long-term memory, so that fight-flight gets imprinted there. Mm-hmm. And you come along and you listen to me, and, and, and I say to you, tell me your experience of what happened to you during that period of conflict. And finally, you can begin to open and release that in a context that's that's peaceful. So now this new science is so helpful to us in peacemaking because it's telling us how do you create a field of limbic resonance with the other people? How do you activate the the deep heart's core so that your heart has an electromagnetic field of coherence that is going to help the other person enter the state of being that you are in? This is profound, I think, in terms of how when I talk about really scaling up peacemaking on a planetary level, these are things that can be taught in school. In fact, the Institute of Heart Math and groups like that are beginning to teach these practices in school. And what we know is that heart-centered work and empathy curricula influence the whole educational system in the whole uh, intellectual cognitive capacities of of children who practice it. Mm -hmm. As I'm sitting here talking to you, you have a very uh, intent, I'd say, uh, curious focus on my face and my words. I'm curious, as you try to employ that throughout the day, two things. One is, what are you most often seeing that maybe motivates you to help people along one face at a time? And the second question is, isn't it exhausting to put that much intention to listening all the time? No, I don't believe it is exhausting. I believe it's actually nurturing because I think one of the primary laws of the universe, if you like, is the law of reciprocal maintenance, that there is an energy system that develops quite naturally when we give our attention to something. We receive that flow back, that limbic resonance that we were talking about. So my heart gets nourished by feeding my attention to you, which is, again, if we think this is really paradigmatic, that this is a framework of meaning that can be applied universally, 
then we can teach each other how to attend to each other in a way that really creates this flow, this reciprocity of nourishment. And it's why I think we live in the time of we, of the collective, of looking at taking the me, you know, all that great work in the mind-body health movement that's focused on the me into the social body, into the we, and applying it in a way that suggests that we can learn how to reciprocally maintain each other through consciousness, through awareness, because consciousness itself has life-giving power. Just remember, you know, back into your childhood, say, maybe at the age seven, who, or at any point in your growth, who was the person who saw you, who gave that attention to you, who said, look, I see you. You can't hide from me. I, you know... You can, you know, you can fool the others, but not me. I know what you're really made of. And you grow, you grew, you opened, you blossomed in that awareness because you're being seen and recognized. Consciousness has that capacity. Isn't that amazing? That we can give the gift of recognition of sight, of truth to each other, and that that feeds us both, and that the energy grows. So you have that sense of, I'm not being diminished. I'm not being sparing with energy and I'm not being spartan or I'm not being diminished by holding it back, but rather that when I open to that field of consciousness, so something grows. And when I look at Rwanda and places like that, you take not just you know a, a little problem, but genocide, And now that society is a model for planetary healing on how people release enmity, on how they move out of those fixations of violence. And so the releasing, the forgiveness part of the story is really giving your awareness and attention to the other and saying, I'm going to listen to your story and and that will also feed me. So peacemaking and peacemaking tools these days are very relational tools. They're very much about how do we relate to each other in a way that summons up those nurturing qualities. James O'Dea is our guest. The Peace Ambassador training through the SHIFT network is um, 13 weeks, $750 or so. It's about $60 a session. I'm sure in a weak economy that feels out of reach to some people. And it's actually 16 weeks. Ah, even and, better deal per session. Okay, yes. pardon me. <laughs> and in the current uh, program, there are about 160 people. About 40 of those have some level of scholarship. Lots of scholarships to uh, people in the developing world, youth leader in Nepal who to, who's taking it and so on. So there's a tremendous effort to bring in the people who really want to be there but can't afford to be there and at the same time to have a a fee base that helps support something as as staffed up as it needs to be in the shift network. So I think it's a good combination. But in general, uh, outside of that outreach, do you wrestle with the idea of trying to get this way of thinking out in – parts of the American population even that aren't used to 
considering this or take a cynical attitude about it or throw it in a basket with new age thinking or singing kumbaya or whatever they want to do to stigmatize it. Um, I don't fundamentally believe that the missionary approach works, that uh, there is a call here, there is a call for those who resonate with it, and that it's building up that energy field of those who really are connecting and resonating with this work. Uh, I don't think you can preach to the cynic the cynic is one who says, whose, whose sense of hope has collapsed, whose sense of possibility has collapsed, whose sense of control requires them not to breathe in too many ideals. And uh, I don't think you can talk to that You can you, in a missionary sense because it will only contract more. What that's really working inside the energy of the problem. What you have to do is create a field where there is so much energy in that field that people are attracted to it. Let them have their belief. But what you can do is show that there is a plurality of belief. Let them see that there are other beliefs and open the possibility for them to experience some of those other beliefs. But then at the end, as a practical matter, at the end of a peace ambassador training, what is the final invitation or challenge to the students that have taken those 16 weeks? Uh, we've just, you know, we've completed one peace ambassador training, and there we're in the second and more are coming. And... Uh, you know, a, a woman in her 70s in one of the counties in California got so activated that she's organized it as a peace county. She's got all kinds of activities at the county governance level all the way through. Another person uh, said, you know, I am going to convene something called Imagine Peace Conference on 9-11. And while people are thinking about the injury and the wounding of 9-11, we will, you know, be celebrating a conference, a peace conference. So what we try to do is activate people to release their essential qualities because that's the key. It's not what my design is for you to do what I think you ought to be doing for peace. This reframing of peace around, you know, my essential qualities. What are my gifts? Maybe it's poetry. Maybe it's dancing. Maybe it's it's wildly different than I could ever imagine doing. That's what you should be doing for peace. You should be releasing that sense of your qualities. That's where the energy will pick up. The connectivity will pick up. And you will be creatively engaged in in that culture of peace that we're trying to frame, that you'll be living out your responsibility to do something rather than pointing the finger and saying, whose rights have been violated? Why have they been violated? Who's wrong here? Who's to blame? Some of that work has to be done in time, naming the, the problem and understanding the problem. We need to give our energy to the, to the dancers of peace and to the creators of peace who 
whose, whose imagination we should not prescribe in any way. So the feeding of democracy and any of the movements that are 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 healthy at the moment say you know we democracy is pluralistic it's about the vitality of the individual coming to bring their energy and being greeted and being welcomed and made a part of a system of energetic exchange and it's that system of energetic exchange that we then look at from this whole system's perspective, and we say, yes, welcome economy, now dance with ecology, so that ecology and economy come together in a sustainable format. Who are the brilliant people out there with ideas and modalities to, to see that the future generation marries economy and ecology? Because we certainly divorce them, and that was a, a terrible divorce for planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, brings me to one of my closing questions. Is Can any part of capitalism, you're talking about systems here, can any, any part of capitalism or pursuing creature comforts coexist with being a peace ambassador or must one renounce such pursuits? You, it sounds like you're saying that there's a way to bring these together. Yes, there's, there, there is a way to bring the entrepreneurial spirit that says – I can use capital and capitalist modalities in service to my community. Let us use the business and entrepreneurial spirit to create the new technologies, the new farming systems, the new relationship with Mother Earth that is so needed. And at the heart of healthy capitalism, value-centered capitalism, is that creative entrepreneurial spirit which now we ask and we invite into service for humanity because we live at this critical moment when Earth is is in the balance. And if we continue profiteering, we will go over the edge. James O.D. is the author of Creative Stress and Cultivating Peace. He's a former Washington, D.C. president of Amnesty International and past president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He has a number of other social healing credits on his resume, including his role as facilitator of a 16-week online peace ambassador training offered by the Shift Network. I'm Paul Ingalls. When Peace Talks Radio continues, we hear from two graduates of James O'Dea's peace ambassador training right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes to hear online at peacetalksradio.com. 
You can also go there for photos, partial transcripts, podcasts, newsletters, and other links and resources, all at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and so far we've been hearing from James O.D., who guides a 16-week online peace ambassador training. Now we'll talk with a couple of graduates of his program, both of whom James mentioned. One is the gentleman who put on a peace conference in California on the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorists' attacks on the U.S. His name is Eric Kassam, and he says you might not expect someone with his resume to be taking a peace ambassador training. After writing for a while with the New York Times Magazine and covering politics for CBS News, he worked at the Conservative Heritage Foundation and was a speechwriter for the Reagan and first President Bush administrations. Speechwriting is sort of a um, community, a, uh, a process put together by a committee. So it's like the cutting room floor, and a lot of my best uh, soaring prose got ended up on the cutting room floor. My speeches never actually were spoken verbatim until um, I worked for a nonprofit uh, that was dedicated to world peace, and then the CEO. Um, would do my speeches off a teleprompter, and it was a lovely experience to hear my words actually spoken and to see applause and to get a standing ovation. So uh, eventually it came around. Can you tell me more about the nonprofit? Sure. I was working for the um, Xinyuan Foundation, which is a Buddhist um, uh, foundation that gives grants. They're based in San Francisco, and they're uh, whole purpose of existence is to promote world peace. And up until that point, I hadn't really thought much about it. I was just trying to, you know, have a successful career and raise my kids. And um, then these ideas started swimming around in my head about how we could create a better world together. And um, I started to kind of get the vision for how things could be better. How old were you and uh, what year was that happening? (laughs) That's very recently, within the last three years. So what did turn you toward peace work and this organization? You know, it was kind of an accident. Um, I always read the books by the Dalai Lama, and when the Dalai Lama would come speak, I'd go see him speak. And I kind of liked Buddhism. And um, then, so I became a Buddhist, and now I'm actually an ordained Buddhist priest, which is funny if if you really knew me. (laughs) But anyway, um, and the idea of of the Buddhists that, that, that were teaching me was basically that an act of service is an act of peace, that harmony is created by sincere acts of service to others, and that the problems of the world are created by self-seeking and self-centeredness and the pursuit of power and money, and that what we really need to do is help each other and, and embrace each other and, and so forth. So these were new ideas to me, and it all it, it came from Buddhism, even though um, they don't have a monopoly on such ideas. You know, a lot of different faiths and belief systems believe in uh, um, loving your neighbor as yourself and so forth. And um, it really began to change the way I saw the world. Eric Kassam, then you were drawn to the Peace Ambassador training online through the Shift Network. Tell me how that connection came about. Yes, well, what happened was the economy had really tanked, and it's really affected my career area a lot. And um, so a promised staff job at the foundation um, didn't materialize. And I was sort of going, well, what next? What next? And I was starting to think about how I could play a role in peace. And I got an email from the Shift Network, and um, they said, we have this peace ambassador training, and you can actually get certified as a peace ambassador. So I signed up. And it was a decisive moment for me. It was a turning point in my life. And it's the best thing I ever did. Outside of moving in that direction with your Buddhist studies and work with the nonprofit, what was attractive about being certified as a peace ambassador? Yeah. 
I think I just wanted to learn about peace, what it is, what it looks like, and maybe if you can do anything about it. And um, I think in the process of taking this class, it, it began to, I learned a lot and it was inspiring, but I began to redefine my world and my role in it. So it was a very much of a, a thing that changes the way the person sees the world. And um, I didn't know what to expect, but the great thing about it was we had access to um, people like Arun Gandhi, you know, Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, and he would tell stories about sitting down with Mahatma Gandhi and things that they had done together. And people like Don Beck and Georgie Kelly and really great thinkers that are on the front line of peace. And the class itself was hosted, as you know, by James O.D., who worked for Amnesty International in their Washington, D.C. office. And he had actually been a peace worker in Rwanda and Northern Ireland and in the Middle East. So it was incredible to spend time with people that were on the front lines of peace and, and be able to ask them questions. But it also helped me redefine myself. And the second part of the class, which was, uh, it, it was informational, but you also had access. But it was really about stepping into your own greatness. And it, it seemed to me that they didn't want a thousand new uh, students of peace, that we all have more information than we know to do things differently, that what we really need to do is is take action, so that they were building a thousand new leaders of peace. And so it was based upon really getting people to step into their greatness and take action on their passions and their dreams and really reshape their destiny. And what does that action look like for Eric Kassam? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um it's profound. I mean, everything looks different. It's like I have a new pair of glasses on, right? And I see how everything in the world's related to peace. But for example, um, right around that time, I heard a story that changed my life. And um, it had to do with an act of service being an act of peace. Um, there was a, a lady that I met who was, she is a, a director of a K through 12 school in Minnesota. Her name is Nan Peterson. And she went to uh, Kenya um, because she heard there were a lot of orphans. And it, she told me that there's 33 million people in Kenya, but 11 million are orphans. And I thought, oh my gosh, what if 100 million American kids had lost both parents? And so um, immediately I, I wanted to hear her story, but she said they went to Kaibera, which is the slum of Kenya, of, of Nairobi. And this little boy walked up and handed her a bundle. And he said, here's my baby sister. My father died of AIDS. My mother has died of malaria and I'm not feeling so good myself and when I die they'll throw my sister into the street to die and apparently the boys in orphanages get food but the the girls don't they are thrown into the street and so Nan was holding this baby going oh my god so she went to this girls orphanage and sure enough these girls were starving to death and uh, they had one old half-dead cow that was uh, giving maybe one cup of milk a day and each girl got one teaspoon of milk a day and Nan comes back to Minnesota and she's going, man, we've got to do, what could we do? And she asked the students, what could we possibly do? And they were taking a class, an art class, where they were learning how to make homemade paper. So somebody got the idea, probably, the kids were anywhere from six years old to 17, uh, of making paper and selling it, homemade paper and selling it to buy a cow. So the kids made a ton of paper and they sold all this paper. And by the time they were done, they had enough money to buy four cows and feed them for an entire year. And it was like, these are kids six years old doing something to save the life of somebody halfway around the world who they've never even met. And I thought, if a six-year-old could do that, 
what could I do? And it was a very defining moment. So it happened right at the time of the Peace Ambassador training. And I thought, my goodness, you know, I was a little embarrassed that I didn't do more. So um, I got together with uh, uh, some of the other members, the graduates of Peace Ambassadors, and we organized a peace conference. And um, I think a lot of people are hungry for more you know, more meaning in their life. They're, they have a desire to make a difference, but they don't really know how. And so when Nan told me that story, it was like I realized we need to tell the stories of peace. We need to be telling the stories of heroes who inspire us. And and I know that when we watch the news a lot of times, it doesn't feel very inspiring and it doesn't feel like um, it enriches our lives. But these stories do. So we thought, well, we'll tell the stories of peace. We'll have a peace conference. And um, not only that, but you know, we'll, we'll, we believed that change happens face to face and it happens when you take action. So we, um, actually I was pretty broke at the time. The economy has really hit my income. And so I had a garage sale and I sold a bunch of junk, you know, from my garage that was gathering dust. And I took that money and I placed a down payment on the, um, auditorium, the hall, it's called Wheeler Hall at UC Berkeley. And so together with my other Peace Ambassador graduates, we, we made this conference. We started inviting speakers, and we held it on 9-11 weekend because we knew that on that weekend, everybody would be watching TV, and all they'd be seeing is the falling Twin Towers. And we wanted to send out a message that uh, we have a choice. We don't have to continue the cycle of war and violence, that there are other options. And um, it turned out great. And the speakers were fantastic. And it really created a magic magic moment. Um, so the question really was, what's next, right? And I knew I had to try to solve certain problems. Um, like, for example, people rose up and literally stopped the Vietnam War. They actually got two presidents out of office because of it, and they were very successful. And then when the war was ended, they all went home and raised their kids. See, I think they forgot what they had done right. And the next thing you know, we have more wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth. And so my sense of it was we have to make peace sustainable. It has to be something that people do every month or every day or that it's a part of our everyday life. And the only way that will ever happen is if it's bite-sized. We make peace in bite-sized pieces that anybody could do. And uh, then the next thing I was thinking is that we've got it's got to be grassroots, that, you know, it has to be something where people get together face-to-face. Um, you know, I don't believe we'll ever have peace as long as we leave that job to governments because they're not good at it. They're very good at war, but they're not very good at peace. And what we have to do is get the average person to, to take a share of ownership in peace. So so that was why we thought maybe we should do another conference, but we should do it every month or something. And so we got to thinking, what if we could have 100 peace conferences? You know, two per state. Um, that would be 100, not counting international, right? So um, one of our projects is um, 100 peace conferences. And the only way it could really happen is if you make it bite-sized so that anybody could do it. So let's suppose that... Um, People want to have friends over in their living room for a potluck. That's very inexpensive. And we give them DVDs of the speakers that we would have had at a major conference. And they can watch them and and talk about them and debate about them. We could take the workshops. Instead of having it all happen in a two-day conference, they could do one a month and then work on it for the next 30 days. So we could have 12 workshops. It could literally be a one-year or a 12-month peace conference. And if we had hundreds of these... 
It could be uh, done in a living room or in a school or a library or um, even a university or a church. So that, I think, is the direction we're going next is um, to take the Imagine Peace Conference, you know, the, the brand, the, the mold, and to multiply it into hundreds of baby peace conferences. And that actually happened as a result of the think tank, which... Um, after I graduated from Peace Ambassadors, I started a think tank called the Live Peace Institute. And that people can come to our website, which is being built now, but it's going to be livepeaceinstitute.org, and um, have a look at what we're doing. But the Imagine Peace Conference was a, a byproduct of that. And a couple other good things have happened from that as well. What do you think is the most compelling approach to draw someone to more action toward peace? How do you draw people from their busy lives, their uh, legitimate care about raising their children and having families? Maybe this concept of having a bite-sized approach that you mentioned is what would work. But how do you talk them into it? What, what do you say to help them want to find space in their busy lives to work for peace? Um, that's a great question. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot. Really, bite-sized is the answer. I mean, when you when – you, there are actually three pieces to that. Um, when there was the earthquake in Haiti – and the Red Cross said, text something on your phone and you can send $10, $10, right? And in a few weeks, they raised $30 million. I think that shows you that a lot of people want to make a difference. They're hungry for, for some more meaning in their life and to contribute, but they don't really know how. Okay. What the Red Cross, the genius of that is they made it easy. You could, I guess, illegally be driving in your car and text <laughs> and send $10 and touch somebody's life, you know, who you've never even met. So um, that was a really big piece. When I saw that, I said, oh, my gosh. I think also a lot of good work is being done already, but, but people don't know it's there. It's like they're all islands. Okay, so what you need is a home for peace or a hub for peace. And um, not only that, but if you want to involve young people, you have to make peace fun. So one of the things our think tank is doing is putting together a program for a website called Peace Dog. <laughs> it's meant to be fun. And the idea is if you can make peace cool and you can make peace fun and, and give them a blueprint, then young people will do it. And uh, for older people, I think, once again, um, there's two things. They have to believe it's possible. They have to believe that they can play a role in it. And then you've got to give them an action plan that's, that's bite-sized because everybody's busy raising their kids and they get home from work and they're tired. So things like that, I think, would make a big difference to um, empower the average person to really get involved in, and make a big difference. You know, we hear about peace conferences and it's governments and it's even the U.S. Institute of Peace, which has done some really wonderful things. Um, but it seems sometimes to me like it's Mount Olympus and the gods are trying to create peace on high. And what can the average person do? But what I'm seeing is that every movement that changed history, whether it was women's right to vote, civil rights, ending slavery, none of those were ever done by governments. They were all done by regular folks, just like you and me, who jumped in and made a difference, and they got momentum, and then the government finally changed the laws and codified the change. But the government didn't make the change. It was the people that, that made it happen. Eric Kassam is a former journalist and speechwriter. He calls himself a grassroots peacemaker. He's the founder of the Live Peace Institute in California. Eric Kassam, thanks for joining us on Peace Talks Radio. Thank you, Paul. Tyra St. John has been working with victims of perpetrators of domestic violence for many years. She lives in rural Lake County, California. Although her Alternatives to Violence project put her in the role of peacemaker of a sort, 
She never thought of herself as someone who could make a difference outside of her work until she too took the online peace ambassador training facilitated by James O.D., which she says challenged her to confront her own personal roadblocks to peace. It takes a lot of courage to practice peace. It takes a huge amount of courage. Uh, There's a chicken in me. There's a rabbit (laughs) that doesn't want to come out. It doesn't want to come out and, and be always sociable or always communication with others. I guess I'm kind of an introvert in that way. And what I learned was that I can't take the upper road all the time. I cannot go there. I have to come down from the mountaintop, you might say, and deal with my issues and with other people's issues on a more personal level. So it's messy and difficult work sometimes. Very messy and very difficult. When you speak your truth, it's not always fun. It's not pleasant. It's not easy to say what you really think or what you feel and still not do it in a blaming way not to blame the other person. Is it also hard to actually find out and be able to verbalize what you feel and what you mean? It isn't when I'm in the room with somebody. It's not that difficult. Except in my own work, I have laws and ethics that keep me from saying some of the things that I'd really want to do because I think that anger and rage and conflict are largely kind of soul issues. And I believe James O'Dee feels this way, too. Tyra St. John, you said that this program turned you into an activist. So what did that look like for you personally? There's a lot of encouragement in the Peace Ambassador Program to help take us into teaching a large number of people about peace. And I woke up one morning, and I thought suddenly nothing is going on in terms of this subject in Lake County. There were a lot of little things, but there was nothing unifying. And this is where you live? That's where I live. I live in Lake County, California, a little rural county that's very poor, very rural, very beautiful, and not very well connected sometimes to the rest of the world. I felt a calling to do something. I felt a need to take a step that I don't think I would have ever taken in the past had I not been in the Peace Ambassador Program. And it was a bold step, and I'm not used to being bold, not openly at least. I just decided to establish this Lake County Summer of Peace, which is, of course, a global event. It's happening everywhere. Lake County and all of the other towns in California had not yet joined. So Little Lake County was the first to become a region of peace. And we are a region of peace with the international cities of peace. So I decided to do this, and within a month, we had the confirmation and a proclamation by our Board of Supervisors, which shocked me. I thought I was going to go in to fight for something, and they gave us an approval for, by you know, five to zero. So we had suddenly had a proclamation, and we weren't doing anything yet. (laughs) So it has meant a lot of work in contacting people who are seeking inner and outer peace and prosperity. Right. So as we speak here in late 2011, you're planning the Lake County Summer of Peace for 2012, and some people will hear this interview after those events. But tell us a little bit about uh, more about the vision of what you're trying to do with a Summer of Peace in Lake County. 
Well, to give you an idea of the opening, we will be meeting in two different parks on either side of the, this beautiful lake. The north end and the south end will have very similar programs where we'll be planting a peace pole, which has words of peace in eight or 16 languages, depending on which size the cities get. And there will be wonderful speakers there, including Roberto Danzi, who is a an expert on Mayan culture and on cultural diversity. And hopefully our orchestra will have a small, at least a quartet, if not more, uh, people there. And we'll have some Renaissance singers and other beautiful music and celebrate the launching of the Summer of Peace. And then from then on, we will have a calendar in the newspaper and every place else we can get it where we will have two or three events a day for 90 days where people can go at either low or no price to learn about different ways of peace. And they can also contribute to that by having their own workshops. What is the unifying message that's going to really be clear to people that takes it beyond a festive summer of activities that they might be able to access at uh, different times of the year or, like you said, a massage class or this or that or a talk coming through? What's what's going to make it uh, compelling and special from a standpoint of people taking a peace message back into their lives? I think that people will understand all the components of peace better, of what actually creates peace at home and even abroad, anywhere else, even in the reds and blues throughout the United States, and how we communicate with each other and how we can listen to another point of view, whether we agree or disagree, and to have productive disagreement. And I believe that peace will have a new meaning for the general populace. Hope it does for me. (laughs) Dr. Tyra St. John is a psychotherapist, life coach, and radio host. She's also one of the chief planners of the Lake County Summer of Peace and a graduate of the Shift Network's Peace Ambassador Training. You can find links to more information about that training and our guests at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Peacetalksradio.com is also where you can hear all of the programs in our series going back to 2003. Order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast or our newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. Please consider a donation. It really will help. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the FNS Fund of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, Seasons Rotisserie Bar and Grill in Albuquerque, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.